Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. July 24. On this date in history, in the year 1911, American archaeologist encounters Machu Picchu ruins. On July 24, 1911, American archaeologist Hiram Bingham gets his first look at the ruins of Machu Picchu, an ancient Inca settlement in Peru that is now one of the world's top tourist destinations. Tucked away in the rocky countryside northwest of Cusco, Machu Picchu is believed to have been a summer retreat for Inca leaders, whose civilization was virtually wiped out by Spanish invaders in the 16th century. For hundreds of years afterwards, its existence was a secret known only to the peasants living in the region. That all changed in the summer of 1911, when Bingham arrived with a small team of explorers to search for the famous lost cities of the Incas. Traveling on foot and by mule, Bingham and his team made their way from Cuzco into the Urubamba Valley, where a local farmer told them of some ruins located at the top of a nearby mountain. The farmer called the mountain Machu Picchu, which meant Old Peak in the native Cusa language. The next day, July 24, after a tough climb to the mountain's ridge in cold and drizzly weather, Bingham met a small group of peasants who showed him the rest of the way. Led by an 11-year-old boy, Bingham got his first glimpse of the intricate network of stone terraces marking the entrance to Machu Picchu. The excited Bingham spread the word about his discovery in a best-selling book, sending hordes of eager tourists flocking to Peru to follow in his footsteps up the Inca Trail. The site itself stretches an impressive five miles, with over 3,000 stone steps linking its many different levels. Today, more than 300,000 people tramp through Machu Picchu every year, braving crowds and landslides to see the sun set over the towering stone monuments of the sacred city and marvel at the mysterious splendor of one of the most famous man-made wonders. July 25 On this date in history, in the year 1965, Dylan goes electric at the Newport Folk Festival. Before he took the stage at the 1964 Newport Folk Festival, the annual event that had given him his first real national exposure one year earlier, Bob Dylan was introduced by Ronnie Gilbert, a member of The Weavers. And here he is. Take him. You know him. He's yours. In his 2004 memoir, Chronicles, Volume 1, Dylan would write about how he failed to sense the ominous forebodings of the introduction. One year later, he would learn just how possessive the Newport audiences felt toward him. On this day in 1965, Bob Dylan went electric at the Newport Folk Festival, 
performing a rock and roll set publicly for the very first time while a chorus of shouts and boos rained down on him from a dismayed audience. Six weeks earlier, Bob Dylan had recorded the single that marked his move out of acoustic folk and into the idiom of electrified rock and roll. Like a Rolling Stone had only been released five days before his appearance at Newport. However, so most in the audience had no idea what lay in store for them, neither did festival organizers who were as surprised to see Dylan's crew setting up heavy sound equipment during sound check as that evening's audience would be to hear what came out of it. With Al Cooper, an organ, and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band backing him, Dylan took the stage with his Fender Stratocaster on the evening of July 25 and launched into an electrified version of Maggie's Farm. Although immediately, the jeering and yelling from the audience grew loud enough nearly to drown out the sound of Dylan and his band. It has been stated by some who witnessed the historic performance that some of the yelling from the audience that night was about the terrible sound quality of the performance, over loud in general and mixed so poorly that Dylan's vocals were unintelligible. But what prompted the outright booing, even over Dylan's next number, the now classic Like a Rolling Stone, was a sense of dismay and betrayal on the part of an audience unprepared for the singer's new artistic direction. And what did the man himself think of the unfriendly reception he received from what should have been the friendliest of audiences? Some say he was extremely shaken at the time. But with four decades of hindsight, his feelings were clear. Reflecting on Ronnie Gilbert's Take Him He's Yours comment, Dylan wrote, What a crazy thing to say. Screw that. As far as I knew, I didn't belong to anybody then or now. July 26. On this date in history in the year 1931, grasshoppers devastate Midwestern crops. On July 26, 1931, a swarm of grasshoppers descend on crops throughout the American heartland, devastating millions of acres. Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota, already in the midst of a bad drought, suffered tremendously from this disaster. Since the very beginning of agriculture, people have struggled to prevent insects from eating their crops. Locusts and grasshoppers, insect cousins, are among the most feared pests. A plague of these insects can occur when conditions cause their populations to suddenly explode. Usually, this happens under drought or very dry conditions, since their egg pods are vulnerable to fungus in wet soil. When the soil is very dry, swarms can develop. Professor Jeff Lockwood of Wyoming describes being in a swarm as follows. They explode from beneath your feet. They're sort of a rolling wave that forms out in front of you. They hit up against your body and cling against your clothes. It's almost like being immersed in a gigantic living being. The July 1931 swarm was said to be so thick that it blocked out the sun, and one could shovel the grasshoppers with a scoop. Corn stalks were eaten to the ground and fields left completely bare. Since the early 1930s, swarms have not been seen in the United States. However, North Africa and parts of the Middle East continue to experience problems with insect swarms, which sometimes include as many as one billion bugs. July 27. On this date in history in the year 1949, the first commercial jet makes a test flight. 
the world's first jet-propelled airliner, the British de Havilland Comet, makes its maiden test flight in England. The jet engine would ultimately revolutionize the airline industry, shrinking air travel time in half by enabling planes to climb faster and higher. The Comet was the creation of English aircraft designer and aviation pioneer Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, started out designing motorcycles and buses, but after seeing Wilbur Wright demonstrate an airplane in 1908, he decided to build one of his own. The Wright brothers had made their famous first flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in 1903. De Havilland successfully designed and piloted his first plane in 1910 and went on to work for English aircraft manufacturers before starting his own company in 1920. De Havilland Aircraft Company became a leader in the aviation industry, known for developing lighter engines and faster, more streamlined planes. In 1939, an experimental jet-powered plane debuted in Germany. During World War II, Germany was the first country to use jet fighters. De Havilland also designed fighter planes during the war years. He was knighted for his contributions to aviation in 1944. Following the war, de Havilland turned his focus to commercial jets, developing the Comet and the Ghost jet engine. After its July 1949 test flight, the Comet underwent three more years of testing and training flights. Then on May 2, 1952, the British Overseas Aircraft Corporation, BOAC, began the world's first commercial jet service with the 44-seat Comet 1A, flying paying passengers from London to Johannesburg. The Comet was capable of traveling 480 miles per hour, a record speed at the time. However, the initial commercial service was short-lived, and due to a series of fatal crashes in 1953 and 1954, the entire fleet was grounded. Investigators eventually determined that the planes had experienced metal fatigue, resulting from the need to repeatedly pressurize and depressurize. Four years later, de Havilland debuted an improved and recertified Comet, but in the meantime, American airline manufacturers Boeing and Douglas had each introduced faster, more efficient jets of their own and become the dominant forces in the industry. By the early 1980s, most comets used by commercial airlines had been taken out of service. July 28. On this date in history, in the year 1945, a plane crashes into the Empire State Building. A United States military plane crashes into the Empire State Building on July 28, 1945, killing 14 people. The freak accident was caused by heavy fog. The B-25 Mitchell Bomber, with two pilots and one passenger aboard, was flying from New Bedford, Massachusetts to LaGuardia Airport in New York City. As it came into the metropolitan area on that Sunday morning, the fog was particularly thick. Air traffic controllers instructed the plane to fly to Newark Airport instead. This new flight plan took the plane over Manhattan. The crew was specifically warned that the Empire State Building the tallest building in the city at the time, was not visible. The bomber was flying relatively slowly and quite low, seeking better visibility when it came upon the Chrysler building in Midtown. It swerved to avoid the building, but the move sent it straight into the north side of the Empire State Building near the 79th floor. Upon impact, the plane's fuel exploded, 
filling the interior of the building with flames all the way down to the 75th floor and sending flames out of the hole the plane had ripped open in the building's side. One engine from the plane went straight through the building and landed in a penthouse apartment across the street. Other plane parts ended up embedded in and on top of nearby buildings. The other engine snapped an elevator cable while at least one woman was riding in the elevator car. The emergency auto brake saved the woman from crashing to the bottom, but the engine fell down the shaft and landed on top of it. Quick-thinking rescuers pulled the woman from the elevator, saving her life. Since it was a Saturday, fewer workers than normal were in the building. Only 11 people in the building were killed, some suffering burns from the fiery fuel and others after being thrown out of the building. All 11 victims were workers from War Relief Services Department of the National Catholic Welfare Conference into the offices of which the plane had crashed. The three people on the plane were also killed. An 18-foot by 20-foot hole was left in the side of the Empire State Building. Though its structural integrity was not affected, the crash did cause nearly $1 million in damages, about $10.5 million in today's money. July 29. On this date in history, in the year 1996, Carl Lewis wins his fourth consecutive long jump at age 35. Track and field legend Carl Lewis wins his fourth consecutive Olympic gold medal in the long jump. It was the ninth and final Olympic gold of his storied career. Frederick Carlton Lewis was born on July 11, 1961 in Birmingham, Alabama, and raised in a middle-class community in New Jersey. As a teenager, Lewis met Olympic champion Jesse Owens, who became his hero. He participated in track and field, but was undersized until high school when he grew the long legs that help a sprinter cover ground and underwent a huge growth spurt that forced him to walk with crutches for three months while he fine-tuned his gait. Once fully developed at six feet, two inches tall, Lewis set a national high school record in the long jump with a 26-foot, eight-inch leap. After a standout career at the University of Houston, Lewis won the 100 meters, 200 meters, and the long jump at the 1983 National Championships and entered the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles as the top-ranked sprinter in the world. There, he met his goal of four gold medals, winning the top jump, the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and anchoring the victorious U.S. team in the 4-by-100-meter relay. The win at Atlanta made Lewis the first Olympian since American discus thrower Al Order to win the same event four times. His career is considered among the greatest in track and field history. July 30. On this date in history, in the year 1965, President Johnson signs Medicare into law. On July 30, 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signs Medicare, a health insurance program for elderly Americans, into law. At the bill signing ceremony, which took place at the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri. Former President Harry Truman was enrolled as Medicare's first beneficiary and received the first Medicare card. Johnson wanted to recognize Truman, who, in 1945, had become the first president to propose national health insurance, an initiative that was opposed at the time by Congress. The Medicare program 
providing hospital and medical insurance for Americans age 65 or older, was signed into law as an amendment to the Social Security Act of 1935. Some 19 million people enrolled in Medicare when it went into effect in 1966. In 1972, eligibility for the program was extended to Americans under 65 with certain disabilities and people of all ages with permanent kidney disease requiring dialysis or transplants. In December 2003, President George W. Bush signed into law the Medicare Modernization Act which added outpatient prescription drug benefits to Medicare. Medicaid, a state and federally funded program that offers health coverage to certain low-income people, was also signed into law by President Johnson on July 30, 1965, as an amendment to the Social Security Act. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for July 24 through July 30. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.